Get 15% off the fullest entire product line with code the fullest podcast at checkout. One of the main ingredients in our product line, saffron, has been proven over and over again in clinical double blind placebo trials to be an effective form of treatment for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years for these purposes, and now the research is here to finally back it up, proving that plant medicines and ancient healing practices can actually be an effective alternative to pharmaceuticals. From caffeine-free latte powders to saffron baths and capsules, there's something for any modern woman looking for ancient healing. Again, that's code the fullest podcast at checkout for 15% off. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Jessica Leahy, who is a New York Times bestselling author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation, and so much more. She's written countless publications and has a bi-weekly column that ran for three years at The New York Times. She is just a wealth of information, and I'm just really excited to chat with you today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love getting on and talking about this stuff. It's anything having to do with mentoring and raising kids. I love all of it. Yes, I I think for us, our audience, you know, we're we're really trying our best as parents. We're new parents. You know, we have a lot of millennial women that follow along. We just want to be, you know, conscious parents. And most of our audience is just really into wellness. And so we take our health seriously. And I think For me, what was really interesting was just like coming on and finding your information online and kind of seeing how I could apply to it to support as my children grow up and really do what I can because I think that I was a troubled, (laughs) I was a troubled youth in high school (laughs) and I don't want to repeat that. So I'm like, anything I can get my hands on to like Obviously, like we, I really believe and have shared in the past about generational trauma that mm-hmm. you, I've really, my family were Iranian and um, my parents, my mother grew up in the war. Her father was executed in the Iranian revolution. Like there's been so much generational trauma from that side and also just like everyday stuff, right? That like mm-hmm. anyone goes through that I've really like dedicated my life to healing and diving into. And before I became a parent, I really did so much work on myself, but it's never ending process. It's like an onion you peel back the layers and you're constantly learning, constantly applying. And, and I just am very curious person. So I'm really just looking forward to this conversation. And I think we started about just you telling us a little bit more about yourself and like how you got into your field of study. So I, (laughs) I was absolutely positive. I had it all figured out in my late twenties. I was going to go to law school and I was going to work in juvenile court. I had a mentor. I'd spent a lot of time working in, in juvenile court and sort of tagging along. I had it all figured out. 
And then during law school, I was asked to teach a class at the Duke Talent Identification Program. And I came home that day and my husband knew immediately. He was, um, and I, we joke about this all the time, that he could see that I was completely hooked on teaching. He even said, are you even going to finish law school? And I did, but I went straight into teaching. So I've taught every grade from six to 12. And I think being a teacher is such a great field for me because I am just curious about everything. And my job as a journalist, especially as an education journalist, is to get curious about something and then go research and research and research and then report back to and let other people know what I've discovered. And it's such a cool job. And then when I moved into writing books, you know, it was, I got to do even deeper dives. So my first book was really about the intersection of parenting and education and how the way we parent affects kids' ability to learn and their motivation and why they're motivated. And so that was super fun. I loved writing and I get still get to do a lot of speaking about that book. And like you said, it was this best-selling book. And so then I'm stuck with this whole, okay, what do I do next? You know, because it's really scary if you've, and it's fantastic. It's a fantastic situation to be in when you've had a first book that did really well. How on earth do you follow that up? And so for a long time, I just was patient and my agent was great. She didn't push me. And I got sober on June 7th, 2013, which was right after I sold my first book. And the timing was great because I couldn't have written that book if I hadn't gotten sober. And so starting about a year after I got sober and I started working in an inpatient rehab for adolescents, my focus very quickly became on, okay, I mean, you talked about intergenerational trauma. Like I am the offspring of an alcoholic and that parent is the offspring of an alcoholic and so on and so on and so on. And it's the same story on my husband's side of the family. So all of a sudden I'm looking at my situation and saying, wait a second, is this just going to keep going? Like, where does this end? How do, what's best practices for how I make this end with me? And at the same time, I was teaching kids who were newly in recovery. And, you know, my teacher brain was like, well, how did these kids end up here? And is there anything we could have done differently in schools? So I looked for that book. That book didn't exist on sort of the intersection of parenting and education and how we prevent substance use in kids. And I got to spend, you know, a couple of years researching all of that and becoming an expert on that. And luckily I'm married to a physician and a statistician. And that job of just sort of figuring out the answers to the questions based on the research that's available. I, I love that. And so for me, my job has always been go find out what all the research says, best practices, maybe what we should be doing, what the myths are. And so many of us are sort of operating under sort of magical thinking and myths about what might work and hoping and crossing our fingers. And so I get to now talk about, okay, well, that's all good, but here's actually what works and how we can make what actually works a part of our parenting and our teaching and our mentoring and our coaching and anyone who works with kids, that kind of thing. Wow, that's a wonderful background. So you you had little kids when you became sober? So when I got sober, my kids were nine and 14 when I got sober. Yeah. Wow. I told them right away about that, like why I wasn't going to be drinking anymore. But 
a key point in this is that they already knew they had a grandparent who was struggling and had relapsed actually one year and really Christmas got obliterated one year very painfully because of a relapse. And so we had been very honest with them about that and about why as a parent it's our job to keep them safe and, you know, and to be honest with them about what's going on in our family. And it's ended up becoming a really important sort of object lesson, not just in what can go wrong if you go down that road, but that people can recover and that people can get better and that we do the best we can based on the information we have. And then if we learn how to do better, we do better. So can I ask you, were you, do you consider yourself an alcoholic or did you just choose to stop drinking? Oh, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah, I was. Yeah, no, I am. So I, I have a, what I thought was a very unusual story, which as it turns out is actually not that uncommon of a story. I was so scared of alcohol because of what it did to my parent that when I was young, I really didn't drink much. I drank here and there, but didn't really care about it one way or the other. Um, Definitely didn't do drugs, just wasn't really into it. And it wasn't until I had my own children and found myself, I don't know, I I was home with them. I was bored. I love being home with them, but I was a little bored. I had been through law school at that point. Um, my husband was learning how to save people's lives. He's a physician and he yeah. was in fellowship and internship at the time. And he's out there like saving people's lives. And I'm at home, you know, cleaning up baby food off the floor. And I think just all of that and proximity. We were living right near a Trader Joe's. It was really easy for me to walk over there and pick up some cheap wine. You know, it was all of those things. And then, so by the end of my 30s, my drinking had really gotten away from me. And in my early 40s, I knew I was in trouble. And so by the time my dad actually intervened on me after I got blackout drunk at my mom's birthday party, I was absolutely ready. I was ready to get help. I I really knew I needed help. It had gotten pretty bad. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Of course. Of course. I, yeah, I'm very, so, and I want to share with you a little bit about like why I feel so curious about this. And Mm -hmm. um, I love like the series that you shared too. I want to get into about how people are like, oh, you know, kids, as long as like you are open with them and they can start drinking like the Europeans do. And I love (laughs) your It's so funny and it's so true. And to me, it never really made sense, but I love that you kind of shared like the stats because that's really important and we never really look at that. But so my husband and I have been together since high school and Mm -hmm. he, when I met him, I used to drink a lot, but I wasn't like open with my parents. It wasn't like a European situation. I was Mm -hmm. just 16 in high school drinking a lot and like experimenting with things, but his cousin had just overdosed on heroin and had just died. So he was a little more weary, um, but he would drink, but his parents just like were more, my parents were going through a divorce. So they were less like concerned about my life and they were very (laughs) concerned about their own life. So I was just like going out partying. He was like living with his parent or his stepmom and dad. So they were kind of like more on top of it. So anyways, he, um, but he comes from a family of alcoholics. His mom, he grew up with his mom being an alcoholic. Every single cousin, except for he and his sister have gone to rehab. Three of them have now passed away from heroin addiction. And two of them are like recovering. And another one is unfortunately probably on the way there. She's addicted to heroin, doesn't speak to the family. And so it's like, 
having little children and seeing my husband who on his dad's side is like the cousins having all the heroin and um, different addiction issues and the mom's side, a line of alcoholics, um, mm-hmm. grandfather passed away from liver failure, from alcoholism and, and prescription drugs and whatnot. So I see like on both sides having this strong lineage, my father's grandfather, um, he in Iran had an opioid addiction. So my grandmother never knew her dad. So on my side, I have like one set mm-hmm. of um, grandparents that have addiction. So we have like addiction rampant and the lineage yeah. and it stresses me out. And I always feel like, cause I, I, what happened with me, and I think this is an interesting part of a conversation to have is like, I drank and then my husband was the one that was like, you know, my mom's an alcoholic and I really don't want to be with someone who drinks a lot. And mm-hmm. so I just like totally was like aware of it, stopped really drinking. We both went to college together at a state school in Oregon. And it was interesting because that was when I was on my, we were both on our own, obviously for the first time, but my husband, he started heavily drinking like to the point and his, he was like a Red Bull rep. So he would throw <laughs> these parties. So he like basically got kicked out of school like three times because he drank so much and partied so much and it's part of the culture right so like no one really believed and i would be like hey i think like my my boyfriend at the time needs a little bit of support like we you know and but it was like everyone thought it was normal no one thought it was it's so hard to get support at that age because everyone's like that's what they do Yeah, yeah yeah and then for me i i don't know if it's because i'm a I don't know why, but I just got it all out in high school. So I just like never really wanted to drink. I would drink just to keep kind of keep up with him. But then I just was like, I don't want to drink anymore. I became a yoga instructor and just like kind of stopped drinking. Basically, I didn't fully stop drinking until I became pregnant with my son because here and there I'd have wine. But then once I became pregnant, I was like, there's literally no point in drinking anymore. Um, And then I have like two kids now and I just I don't like it. But since then, two of his cousins during this time period passed away from overdose and i was just like i don't really see how this like even so i think it's like now become such a coping mechanism for society and something that is um just accepted and i i just don't even know how to wrap my head around the whole thing but i think that a really interesting conversation that we can maybe start with is like if you have this in your lineage like do you believe that people I I don't know, like, when do you view it as a drink? I know that like a drinking problem, there's like, if you drink multiple times a week, you are considered an alcoholic, right? Um, I don't know the exact definition, but can you share with us? I'm so glad you're asking this question because I don't think that question is terribly important. I think we're starting to be in a place now in society where you are allowed as a woman to say, or as a human being to say, you know what, alcohol is just not really working for me. And that can be just because, you know, let's say you have one drink and let's say you happen to be, for example, of Asian descent. A lot of people of Asian descent have, uh, get this like flushing situation when they drink and it's very uncomfortable. And that could be a reason that someone of Asian descent says, you know what, this just alcohol just doesn't sit well for me. There could be another person. So I had a conversation just recently about the fact that I absolutely adore uh, Haribo sour gummy bears. 
and they make me feel awful. It gives me heartburn, the sugar make gives me a headache, it makes me feel awful. And so I have this decision to make, like, I can try to moderate my gummy bears, but I also am not very good at moderating my gummy bears. So I can make a decision to either buy the gummy bears or not buy the gummy bears. And recently I've tried something crazy, which is not buying the gummy bears, not because I'm a gummy bearaholic or not because I have no control over the, but because I just know it doesn't make me feel good. And that's a perfectly valid reason to say, this may not be right for me. In terms of like, do I, do I rise to the level of alcoholic? And by the way, we're supposed to use the term a person with substance use disorder. We're supposed to use a person first language. You know, you can take the quizzes in the magazine. You can Google, am I an alcoholic? And there are quizzes you can take. But essentially for me, it comes down to is it getting in the way of your relationships, of the things you have to do in your life? And by relationships, I mean with our kids, with our spouse, with our partner, whoever. Is it getting in the way of those things and making your life lesser than? Because all of these things are a cost-benefit analysis, right? So caffeine, I sometimes drink too much caffeine. And so I've had to make rules for myself, like I can't have it after noon or whatever. And that's those are ways that we can sort of you know, monitor what makes us feel good and what doesn't make us feel good and all that sort of stuff. So I love the fact that we're now in a place where I can be, you know, try dry January, be sober curious, you know, that kind of thing. So I love the question because I don't think the question is as relevant because I think what happens is, is if people are able to take this test, this magical test, that tells them just how far gone they are as someone with alcohol use disorder, if they don't rise to the level of official alcoholic, then they're like, oh, I'm cool. I don't need to stop, even if their life is falling down around them. And the problem also is, as someone who works in a rehab, people new to rehab are often really tempted to play the comparison game. And the comparison game only gets you in trouble. Like you're always going to be able to find people who drank more than you, who lost more than you, who, you know, were homeless longer than you were, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that does not benefit you because you are you. And if it works, if it's not working for you, that's all the reason you need to look at that relationship. Yeah, I really like that you pointed that out because you could be someone who doesn't really drink at all. And so you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't really drink, but then you do. And then you, you know, can't handle well, it. And there's also, yeah, there's also different kinds of drinking. You know, there are some people who are like, well, I only drink on the weekends. Well, okay, but you're binge drinking on the weekends. And actually binge drinking is more dangerous than, you know, someone who's maybe having a drink here or there along the way. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can, and we're really good at this as human beings, is, you know, making yeah. excuses, justifying that kind of thing. If it's not working for you, let's think about maybe why it's not working for you. And a good place to start, fantastic place to start, is on um, Andrew Huberman's podcast, the Huberman Lab podcast. He has an entire episode just on alcohol and the brain and the body, essentially what alcohol does the minute it enters the body. And he's not coming at it from a judgmental, you shouldn't ever drink kind of place. He's coming at it from the perspective of a neuroscientist saying, here's the effect alcohol has on the body so that you can make an informed decision about your alcohol consumption. He does one for nicotine, he does one for caffeine, and he does one for cannabis as well. Um, wow. It's just a great place to start where you can say, oh, yeah. okay, 
that's the real effect that whatever this chemical is has on my body. Now I can make an informed decision about my health. What are your thoughts on just like how our society normalizes it? why our society wants to normalize it and just kind of like really like i in my experience when i stopped drinking like everyone had an issue with it uh-huh. like there was no reason it was just like oh you don't want to have a drink now you're making me feel bad or you know that sort of thing not that my husband did that like yeah. fr- i had friends right. that did that it's pretty common for you know if you choose not to have a drink then someone else is like oh i should really think about cutting back as well What's interesting about that is that's not about you, right? That's about them. So you can't control how other people are going to react to your drinking or your not drinking. So I can only control what I do and everyone else can worry about themselves. What's fascinating as someone who lives very publicly in recovery, you know, I've written books about it. There was, you know, once you've had a three page spread in People magazine about the fact that you're sober, you know, you're out there with it. So I think for me, it's been a really interesting and place of privilege, actually, because every single time I talk about being sober, people who might just be slightly curious or people who have been thinking about alcohol or maybe thinking about someone else's relationship with alcohol feel like it's okay to ask about it. And that's that's all I could ever wish for people is, you know, the reality is in your situation, the way you've talked about it, so there's various risk factors for substance use disorder and you've, you, you've got some of them. I mean, genetics is 50 to 60% of the risk picture. And then there's something called epigenetics, which goes between genetics and environment. And that sort of is, you know, things that we experience in our life can make our genes express or not express in certain ways. And actually, you mentioned this sort of generational trauma. There's a wonderful article by Carl Zimmer in the New York Times about the Dutch hunger winter and the fact that even the generations that came after the people who experienced the Dutch hunger winter still had symptoms of that trauma in them, even though they weren't alive during that thing. And that's fascinating to me. And then after that, we have adverse childhood experiences, trauma, academic failure, social ostracism, aggression between children, um, undiagnosed learning issues. There's all kinds of risk factors that enter in after you deal with the big ones, which are the genetics and the trauma, big T trauma. But keeping all of those things in mind, if you know that you and your kids have an elevated risk because of genetics, It's worth a pause to say, okay, well, if my kids are at higher risk, then what are the best practices out there to help my kids sort of have the best statistical advantage when it comes to hopefully not following in the same path. And there is no guarantee, there's no guaranteeing anything just in the same way that you can't guarantee, you can't control someone else's reaction to you're not drinking. You know, I got sober before my parent got sober and I could not control their getting into sobriety no matter how much I wanted to. And I cannot control whether or not my children will end up with substance use disorder. But I can load things up on the protection side as much as humanly possible to give them the best possible chance of avoiding that as well. So tell us what that is. I want to know all <laughs> of this. Yeah. So the thing I learned from writing The Gift of Failure is that people wanted scripts. People wanted very specific instructions, and which was interesting to me because I'm not that kind of person. I would like the big picture and then be able to extrapolate on my own how I should implement that. 
but I found out very quickly that people wanted to be told specifically what to do and specifically what to say. So the addiction inoculation gives you both. You've got big picture and you've got scripts. And the best possible substance use prevention starts really early, like pre-K, kindergarten. Mainly because the conversations we have with kids at that point in time about why we spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it, why we don't eat the Tide Pods, why we don't ever take a prescription that doesn't have our name on the bottle, that kind of stuff. Those conversations, you know, as kids get older, flow so naturally into other conversations. You know, if you know that most kids, if they're going to misuse prescription opiates, are going to get that out of either your medicine cabinet or a friend's medicine cabinet, then having started that conversation about prescription drugs and never taking a prescription drug that doesn't have your name on it is going to come in awfully handy. And also the best education-based substance use prevention programs, the best school-based substance use prevention programs start in pre-K and K. And they start with those conversations. And then I sort of in the book, I lay out, okay, you have a preschool kid, here are the conversations you can have, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, college, that kind of thing. Um, So good, solid information about drugs and alcohol, what they do to our brains and bodies, and keeping in mind that you adults you can go out and do whatever the heck you want to do. I am not concerned so much with what adults do insofar as it doesn't um, affect the kids. But adolescent, child and adolescent substance use is a whole different thing. Their brains and bodies, their brains in particular, are not done developing. So things that can be moderate to low risk in an adult can be moderate to high risk in an adolescent. And it's really important that we understand that the younger a kid is when they start using substances, the higher the statistical likelihood of developing substance use disorder over their lifetime. So if an eighth grader starts drinking, then they have around a little bit less than a 50% chance of having substance use disorder during their lifetime. But if we can postpone that to 10th grade, we can cut that mostly in half. And if we postpone till you know, 18, we can cut that even further. So understanding that you're both protecting their brain and lowering their statistical risk by having a consistent and clear message of no, not until your brain is done developing. And that's not easy because I have two kids, one who was raised being allowed to have sips, being allowed to do the, you know, have a little bit of wine here, a little bit of beer there. You're, you know, you're in high school, blah, blah, blah. Maybe if I do this, I'll help you learn how to be a moderate drinker, which by the way is a myth. And then I did the research for this book over a couple of years and my younger child, the rule for her is no, not until it is legal for you. Um, Because we know that parents who have a consistent, clear message of no, not until it's legal for you or not until your brain is done developing, um, those kids have much lower rates of substance use disorder during their lifetime. So essentially really good information, honesty, making sure the conversation starts early, helping kids understand how their brain works, giving kids really good refusal or inoculation theory. That's why the word inoculation is in the title and helping them understand, giving them a sense of self-efficacy and self and helping them learn how to self-advocate so that they feel like they have the ability to stand up to someone who's trying to do something that's counter to their welfare. Like the cool thing, as it turns out, is that inoculation theory tends to generalize. So if we help our kids say, I hate to say, say no to, because we know just say no doesn't work. But if we help our kids figure out why it may not be in their best interest to start drinking in eighth grade, let's say, it also helps them avoid other high risk behaviors like having sex before they're ready or getting in the car with a drunk driver, that kind of stuff. We can protect 
kids from all of that at once through this generalization that tends to happen with inoculation theory. It's pretty cool. If someone has a higher risk due mm -hmm. to their lineage, mm -hmm. then is it, the risk is even higher then, right? It's not just like... Right. If they start drinking, first off, your brain doesn't start stop developing until you're like over 25, right? Yeah. Well, it's it depends on the person. But yeah, somewhere between the early to mid 20s is really when that period of incredible plasticity um, closes. But our brains remain fairly plastic and we can we can fix some things and the brain can heal itself a little bit, but that incredible period of plasticity means that kids' brains are acutely sensitive to the environment and to the chemicals that we put in our body, whether that's chemicals that mess with our dopamine circuitry or that glom up receptors that are meant for some other neurotransmitter that we have in our brain. And we, you know, you can see that if, for example, if a kid uses cannabis on a regular basis, a teenager uses cannabis on a regular basis, they have a high likelihood of having a smaller hippocampus, which is where memory formation happens, and to have some thinning in the prefrontal, in the frontal lobe. So there is short-term and long-term damage that can be done in the adolescent brain that doesn't necessarily happen in an adult brain, given the same chemical interference. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, let's say you were me and you had okay. children yep. who had very high chance and likelihood, like we said, like 50, 60% higher like it's actually you... that's not exactly right it's that the the genetics is about 50 to 60 percent of I the see. risk picture whereas the trauma there's an analogy that i hate but it's really accurate so i have to use it uh, genetics is like a bullet that you load into a gun it can stay there forever and never hurt anybody but yeah. trauma Adverse childhood experiences and trauma are what pull that trigger. And some are more powerful than others. So for example, like childhood um, physical or sexual abuse. Sexual abuse in particular is a massive trigger for you know setting that bullet out and just obliterating things. But there's lots of other risk factors in that, you know, there as well. Like, you know, obviously with physical and sexual abuse, we have, you know, uh, addiction in the home. We have an incarcerated parent, divorce and separation. According to Nadine Burke Harris, who wrote the book, The Deepest Well, we have systemic racism. We have adoption. There's lots of things that fall into the trauma category. Um, and Mate, yeah, that can turn that on. So, mm -hmm. you know, if and and there's also luck. I mean, my sister and I come from similar genetics, and yet my sister can happily have a half a glass of wine and walk away from it. And, you know, but her children are still at risk for um, they still have an increased risk of substance use disorder given their genetics. So, you know, my sister and I both are keeping very close eye on our children and doing everything we can to sort of keep. And there's sometimes when it's not an obvious choice. I mean, there are some things that can be protective in one person and can be risky in another. And we have to sort of keep those things in mind. Like generally speaking, being involved in sports is great for kids. It's fantastic. But if I tell you that there are for sports in particular, where the risk for substance use disorder is much higher, I think that's something you would want to know, right? Like if I told you yes. what those big four sports are, so it's <laughs> it's, high, it's high contact sports. So, and okay. you know, if they're the highest contact sports, then also we have to figure maybe some of that could have to do with head trauma, but um, it's like hockey, football. It's mm -hmm. hockey, football, uh, 
uh, uh, wrestling and lacrosse are the big four. Wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. And actually being a, being a, um, a spectator, a fan of those sports also puts you at a higher, because it ha- comes down to culture, right? Because totally. if, for example, football, like, would you ever have a Super Bowl party without booze? Well, of course not, because it's in all the advertising and it's on the uniform, it's on the stadium, you know, all that sort of stuff. So you have to think also about, you know, the culture in which you're operating. And that's why writing the addiction inoculation was so fun. It was little, even little things like, Okay, some rehabs use dogs as therapy animals. So does having a pet lower your risk factor for substance use disorder? And the jury's still out, but I'm like, oxytocin is good. Oxytocin is a a hormone that you get flowing in your body when you're, I have an animal on my lap right now, it's making me feel better. So if it helps, then sure, let's get another dog. But there's some things where it is really clear cut. And, you know, I looked at everything I could think of that might have a bearing on it. So you obviously would have, like, you're talking about having conversations with preschoolers. So would, at what point would you have a conversation saying, hey, this is part of, I mean, to make it like not too confusing, but like this is part of our genetics and this is why we choose not to do this or, and like talk in, you know, I know coping, like teaching coping skills is a huge part of prevention as well. Talk a little bit about that because I think for me, like I've witnessed my parents to say like, like, for example, I mentioned it um, to my parents and they're like, well, then how else are we supposed to cope with all the stress? And I was like, red flag, red flag, we just it. Like, what? Go to Canada. And they're like, we work yeah. out, we do all this, but we still can't cope. And I'm yeah. like, that's literally so sad that that's why, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Like the reason I drank initially was I have anxiety disorder and it's it was pretty debilitating, especially in my 20s. It was really debilitating. Um, unfortunately, alcohol exacerbates um, anxiety over the long term. So it's not really a winning strategy for a long term management program. But, you know, if you look at sort of the experts in child development and especially if you look at someone like, for example, Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Their books are fantastic. And they talk a lot about the fact that for in order for kids to be able to manage their emotions, they have to be able to identify their emotions and talk about them. So they have this saying, you have to be able to name it to tame it, right? So understanding every, you know, everything, there's so many things that we could be talking about. We could be talking about mindfulness practices. We could be talking about just being able to talk about emotions, like having those you know, those emotion charts where you can look at different faces and say, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling like that. Well, what is that? Well, that is, I don't know, sad. I'm feeling sad. Well, what are you feeling sad about? Having these conversations about how kids are feeling so that they can realize, oh, it's normal to have these feelings and it's normal to talk about these feelings. What's not normal is to not talk about them, to not name them and to eliminate them by numbing them out. So when you see, you know, kids that, especially if you grow up in a family where people don't really talk about how they're feeling, you know, that can be really problematic. And, you know, when people ask me all the time, well, does this mean I can never drink in front of my kids? And I'm like, no, I'm never going to say that unless you have a problem with alcohol, in which case maybe you want to think about that. But what is really important is the way we, when we message about why we're drinking. So if, 
you hear from your parents or whoever it is, how else am I supposed to cope my, with my emotions? Or today at work really sucked. I really need a drink in order to come down from today. Or, you know, it, we're having this big holiday today and there better be a lot of booze at grandma's house or I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. What our kids are hearing is, oh, big emotions. You either need to numb them out, ignore them, do something to avoid them. Um, but the more they're seeing you model actually naming how you feel and talking about it with someone and getting help for those emotions, the more they're going to learn some healthy ways to manage their emotions. So yeah, the way we talk about emotions, the way we manage them and whether or not we have a mindfulness practice and you know whether or not we're just willing to swallow our feelings, so to speak, has a big, because that's about modeling. You know, kids don't always do what we say. They do what we do. And if they see us managing our emotions through numbing them, then, you know, of course that makes a strategy that makes sense to them. I have a question about um, schooling. Uh, like you talked mm -hmm. a little bit about education. Um, yep. We have a lot of people on, including myself, who are interested in homeschooling their children. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you have any statistics on like homeschooling and addiction. I, I do not. And I'm really curious about that. So I'm writing it down right now. And of course, I think that's going to, it's so highly dependent on what your motivation is for homeschooling. Are you homeschooling because you don't want any outside influences? Are you homeschooling because you want more control? Control, uh, you know, we know this is gift of failure stuff, but we know that families who are more controlling of their children, like really controlling of their kids, that their kids lie to them far more, mainly because their kids, especially as they become teenagers, need some autonomy. They need their own space. They need some control, that kind of thing. So the motivation behind the homeschooling is a big deal. Also, how's it going? Like I happen to know, even as a teacher, that homeschooling for my children would have been a massive mistake just because of who my children are, how that would work for us. It just wouldn't have been a great deal for my kids and me. So all of these sort of feed into it. It would be really, you know, the, the thing about statistics, as I'm constantly reminded by the people in my family who are statisticians, that they can be interpreted so many ways and there's so many confounders in those statistics. But now I'm really curious, I'm gonna go look it up. Even regular schools, like high schools in the U.S., and by the way, you know, like I said, we have to start this way before high school. Only 57% of the high schools in this country have any substance use prevention program. And of that 57%, only 10% are based on any kind of evidence of efficacy, which is ridiculous. However, the very best programs for substance use prevention are available to anyone. Some of them might be on the pricier side because a school has to, you know, that kind of thing. They're really good social emotional learning programs with health components and refusal skills. And those programs are out there and I talk about which ones they are and where you can go to get ratings on which programs are effective and which ones are not. I happen to have grown up during the era of D.A.R.E. in the, the first iterations of D.A.R.E. And here's what ends up happening without efficacy studies. You know, I went through D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. make the early iterations of D.A.R.E. made kids more likely to use drugs and alcohol, not less. So yeah. we have to be looking at efficacy. And there's an organization that objectively looks at these programs as opposed to like the programs assessing themselves, that kind of thing. They're available, they're out there, and they can be used by homeschoolers too. So, it, you know, the resources are there.
That makes sense. But I I'm really glad you asked that question because I, I love having a new a new question to look up. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's so funny. I used to say this a lot. Well, like I have a whole like theory on Santa Claus and like my parents lying to me about Santa Claus and how Santa Claus is like a gateway drug because like that was the first time I've caught them lying. And then when I smoked weed for the first time, I was like, oh my God, they're such liars. This is the best feeling ever. That's the problem. That's the problem with saying drugs yeah. drugs are bad or substance addictive substances are bad because that isn't totally true like if a kid hears substances are bad and yet you know that there are all those people out there destroying their lives in order to stay on the substance something doesn't compute there right and if some kids find out, like let's, I profile this woman named Georgia in the book. She was a student of mine. She was a daily drinker by the time she became a student of mine in high school. She heard from this guy who was an alcoholic and was there to talk about his recovery that alcohol helped him not feel things. And he had experienced some pretty bad things and he didn't want to have to cope with those emotions. And she's like, ding, ding, ding. She was feeling... Yeah awful her anxiety was just taking over her life and so that very day was the day that she first drank and she was in middle school so telling kids that drugs are just bad we're lying to them in the sense that well and you know they're just not going to trust us on other stuff as well um so giving them the full picture giving them the information about what drugs and alcohol actually do to their body and the risk benefit ratio all of that kind of stuff that needs to be happening from fairly early on and by the way you asked me at one point you know about how do you talk to kids about you know their genetics and all that stuff well maybe not in preschool and maybe not yeah. in kindergarten elementary school it depends on the kid. My kids were nine and 14 when we really got into this deep, but they knew about their grandparent out of necessity a little earlier than that. But it all depends on your kid and when your kid is ready. And I think you are the best judge, generally speaking, of your kid's cognitive development and when they're ready for what. But it was an important part of the big picture for them and helped them understand some of the stuff that was happening in their lives. Yeah, I think it's so important because like, for example, one of my husband's cousins who just recently passed away last or a couple months ago, he was like in his 20s, early 20s. And he had started just like you said, like very young. I mean, I I think he started around eight or maybe nine mm -hmm. years old because mm -hmm. um, they their house caught on fire in Santa Barbara and his older sister said i have something that'll make you not feel sad and yeah. that was like yeah i think one of the first that's like what i've been told is like one of his first experiences using it was like a prescription drug and it's totally that thing and then like other cousins that or the other cousin that passed he was curious why the cousin before him wanted to try this substance yeah. and got into it so and and multiple cousins um have said that that they wanted to try it because they were wondering why that drug was so good that he yeah. dedicated his life to it and like eventually passed away so it's like this balancing act of like it is bad because of these reasons but like yeah like just kind of giving the full picture not just like this is it almost goes back to like communication right like what we're mm -hmm. saying about sharing your feelings naming them it's like not just giving one word answers and like really acknowledging that our children are capable of understanding 
like a full picture, capable of like just giving them the ability to make, you know, an in informed decisions. Not that like we're giving them the ability, we're telling them, no, you shouldn't be doing yeah. that. Well, also, and no, but I think there is something, there is something to be said for giving kids at least the benefit of the doubt. So I talk about this a lot with the gift of failure and parents, um, real feeling like they really have to monitor their kids in order to be good parents. Like I have to be reading my kids' texts and emails. I have to be monitoring where my kid is all the time on their phone. Well, the problem with that is number one, those kids feel more controlled and therefore lie to their parents more. But on the other hand, the information that we give our kids helps them make better decisions. And when we give them the benefit of the doubt that they might make better decisions, always realizing that like, I personally have never read my my kids' emails, read their texts, looked at their browsing history, or you know have tracked them on their phones. But that has always been open to change. If I felt like one of my kids was in danger and I needed to step in in order to better understand what was happening to them and monitor them and keep them safe, then that's of course a decision I can make as a parent. But if we default to trust, that says a lot about where we are in our heads um, in terms of trusting our children. And I say this a lot. My parents, you know, people ask me a lot about how I was parented because they figure it has something to do with why I've decided to study the things that I study. And the thing I'm most grateful for, two things. The two things I cite the most is that, number one, my parents, on the whole, trusted me to make good decisions. And I really wanted to live up to that. Obviously, not all kids are like that. That's how it was for me. Also, in the same vein, you know, my mom told the librarians at our local library when I was very, very young that I was not to have any books censored, that if I wanted to read any book in the entire library, that they, I had her permission to read any book I wanted to read in the library because she felt, my parents felt very strongly that learning is good, more information is good. And if something troubles me, um, then we can talk about it. Um, but So there's a line, you know, there's a really difficult to walk center line between intense control and just do what I do because I say so, um, because respect me because I'm the parent. And here's why drugs and alcohol can mess with your brain. And here's why I'm telling you that our rule is no, not until it's legal for you or until your brain is done developing. That why thing, kids do not respond very well to because I said so. So anytime we can avoid just say no, because I said so, you know, any of that kind of stuff, um, we're probably on the right path. Yeah, that makes sense. I never responded well with that. So I always <laughs> Neither wanted did I. to <laughs> I was like, but why? But why? But why? Yeah. Even uh, with little things, even with little things. I remember my math teacher, I did not understand why X to the zero equaled one. And um, I, I specifically remember this. And my math teacher said, it's difficult to explain. I just need you to trust me for now. And it wasn't <laughs> until I was a teacher myself and I got my own students, I, I retook math with my students. Um, it's a whole long story. But I <laughs> retook math with my students. And one of my students explained to me why x to the 0 equals 1. And now that clicks into place for me. Whereas the just just trust me, just believe me, just respect me, that, I, that has never sat particularly well with me. I don't deserve trust. I don't deserve trust or respect as a parent just because I'm a parent. I deserve trust and respect because I am respectful and trustful of you and that is reciprocated.
Yeah, I completely agree. Also, it's like the complete opposite of what math is. Like math is not (laughs) trust. It's like, that's a hilarious answer. But I appreciate, thank you so much for joining us today. Like personal questions and just sharing with us more about, you know, how we can be a wonderful example and share and be more conscious about this next generation that we're raising. And thank you for your work. And please let us know how people can find you and find more of your work. I know you have so many talks and you speak a lot and are on panels. So let us know how we can find you. Well, the easiest way is um, over on Instagram, I'm at Teacher Leahy, and every single day I publish a 90-second long video on preventing substance use in kids. And I'm basically just working my way through the addiction inoculation. When people have questions about things, I do a whole separate little series answering questions, so feel free to ask questions in the comments. And everything else is at JessicaLeahy.com. There's my speaking schedule and my journalism and, you know, how you can get signed books and all that kind of fun stuff. And actually, the very under jessicalehy.com there's a my top blog post the one that's sort of pinned up there has a table of contents of all 160 daily videos i've put out about the addiction inoculation with links to each one so if you ever are looking for a very specific thin slice of that topic you can go there to find it okay great that's good to know i'm definitely gonna go (laughs) check it out (laughs) excellent thank you you're so welcome 